0: Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 9 through 16. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the holy, most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, For here here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The word of the Lord. sound, amazing grace. A seat.
1: The gospel everywhere at all time and in every way is heaven's strategy for calling lost people to God. Returning people to the Father. The gospel, the gospel. It should never be contained in our hearts alone. It should never be contained in the walls of this church. The gospel is designed in such a way, and we are called in such a way that we are to take it out as we go out, right? Now, for the last few months, several months, we have been in this series through the book of Hebrews. And we have been looking at, well, a group of believers, Jewish believers that were in danger of giving up on their faith. They were in danger of giving up on their faith because they were being persecuted and they were beginning to wonder if it might make sense just to give it up and fit in with the crowd. Do away with the persecution and begin to blend in. And so the author of Hebrews wanted to address that while he could. And so he drafted this letter, which was designed to be an encouragement an exhortation to those believers who were wavering so they would remember the supremacy of Jesus and the importance of their call and their identity in Christ. He did not want them to settle for anything less than that. Now, last week, we were in chapter 13, and we went through the first eight verses of 13. And in those verses... The author was instilling a vision of how we can live out our faith in practical ways. And remember how I said it could be boiled down to one thing? Do you remember what that was? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It all boils down to love. Loving others the way that God has loved us. And we're going to continue in 13 today, starting in verse 9 where the author concludes his letter with some final words of exhortation. This is a challenge. This is, a, this is a, an opportunity for the, for the author to say, now that you've got this, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to apply this to your life? And so in verse 9, he says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do. Okay, what is he saying here? The author is warning his readers about the fact that you're going to run into false teachers as you go. They're out there. And what appears to be a good thing is not always a good thing, right? See, we know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light and so what he does is he takes a good thing and he distorts it, but just a little bit. Just a little bit so that you won't even notice or even if you do, you may not do anything about it. It's just enough to get you a little bit off track. It's like this, if you were sailing in a ship And you needed to go from New York to the UK. And you set your coordinates and you were one degree off. You might say, well, come on, let's not be legalistic. One degree, it's not that big of a deal. But over time and over distance, you would find that you were in a very, very difficult situation. You would be far from where you needed to be. And that's how Satan works in our lives and sometimes he corrupts well-meaning people by distorting the message. And he's warning these believers, be careful, be careful and know what you believe. Now, when the author says, it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace and not by eating the ceremonial foods, he's warning the readers to put their faith in in God and not in anything less than that. Okay, now what would happen in, in in the day when these Hebrews were worshiping is the Levites would take ceremonial foods that were supposed to represent the power of God and use those in their worship. Those foods were never supposed to, in and of themselves, contain any power. They were just supposed to point people to God, the God who had all the power. But the people sometimes would get confused, and they would look at that ceremonial food, and they would assume that maybe it had some sort of mystical power in and of itself, and they would want to eat that food, thinking that that would derive power for them. But it does nothing All it does is distract you from the real source of power, which is God. It's so easy for us to put our faith in things that are made by God or given to us by God instead of focusing on God Himself. It might be money, it might be your looks, it might be a relationship, it might be your career, it might be a sense of security, it could be anything, but anytime that we move ourselves or our focus away from God and we start to focus on things as the source of our stability, we lose sight of the one true God. And we lose sight of the true source of power. And in verse 10, the author says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What's he saying here? The altar is referring to Jesus. And what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now those ministering at the tabernacle at this point are still living out of the old law. So they're taking animals, they're sacrificing animals to pay for sins. Taking the the carcasses of the animals, taking them outside the city, burning them on behalf of the people to do away with sin. But what happens when that happens? Well, people fall right back into sin again. Okay, and so these teachers are missing out on the new covenant. They're missing out on what Jesus has made available through his sacrifice. So they can't partake of what Jesus has done. And so he's again warning these believers, be careful not to miss out on the best thing, the best news that was ever given to mankind, and that is the gospel. Now, even today, people are doing all sorts of things to try and win their salvation or find favor with God. All sorts of things. And it's probably because nobody has helped them understand the true nature of the gospel. Or maybe if it has been explained to them, they didn't get it or they didn't believe it. And so they aren't tapping in to this incredible gift that God has given us. And the sad thing is, many of these folks will make it to church at some time or another. But if they go to church, the sad thing is there's no guarantee that they're going to hear the gospel there either. Because a lot of our churches don't focus on the gospel. So people can go to church week after week, year after year, and never get any closer to understanding what Christ has done for them. Several months ago, Keith was talking about Trinity, and he was saying, I really hope that Trinity doesn't become a country club instead of a church, right? That's what this is getting at. We don't want to be a country club. So that begs the question, if you're visiting here today for the first time, how do you know if Trinity is a good church? How do you evaluate whether or not this church is aligned with the things of God? How do you know? How do you know if any church is aligned with the things of God? Now, one of the things that is interesting about New York is that people are constantly moving to and from New York. There's a constant flow of people coming into the city and transitioning out. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story one time, an illustration to illustrate this. And what he was saying is that people generally move to New York because they want to make something of themselves. They want to take the gifts that God has instilled in them and do something with them. And they know that if they can make it in New York, they can make it anywhere, right? So they moved to New York, let's say from a a small town in the Midwest or, or somewhere where, let's say they were the best saxophone player in their whole town. And they decide, you know what? I want to do something with this gift. I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to utilize my gift. And they get to New York. They land at JFK. They get on the air train. And they make their way into the subway system. And they go down and onto the platform. And the first thing they notice when they're on the platform (laughs) is somebody playing the saxophone for change. And they're better than they are. (laughs) Isn't that just true of New York? Okay, so that leaves that person with a couple of choices. Either they can get back on that airplane and go back home, or they can settle in, and they they can make the most of themselves. They can can rub shoulders with the best of the best and the the brightest, and they they can really work hard, and they can develop their craft. And a lot of people do. But over time, what tends to happen is those same people, after working crazy hours and after really killing themselves to make it, they start to look around and they meet someone. Maybe they get married. And maybe after a few years they have a child. And their priorities start to shift a little bit. And new words start cropping up in their vocabulary that were never there before. Like work-life balance and margin and Westchester. (laughs) And then pretty soon that person comes to me and they say, James, you know, We love it here at Trinity. We've been here. We've served in here for a long time. And we're thinking that God is calling us to Westchester. (laughs) You know, the quality of life is better. It's going to be good for the kids. The schools, you know, green space, lots of good things there. You know, and you know what? I have even heard stories of people moving to New Jersey. And then they say to me, listen, James, can you tell me how to find a really good church when I go to Westchester or when I go to New Jersey? How do you find that great church? Well, here's the answer to that question. We need to evaluate any church, no matter where you go or when you go, With rather or not, the good news of what Christ has done for us is the center of everything that church does. If that is the center of everything that church does, there's a really good chance you found a great church. But here's the thing. If the leadership of that church does not recognize that the gospel needs to be the center of everything that they do, what they're going to do is they're going to look for the next fad that comes along. And they're going to structure their church around that fad. Some churches, for instance, are all about following the rules. So when you come to church on Sunday, it's all about what you look like and how you behave. Some churches are all about being relevant. Have you ever been to a church that's all about being relevant Okay, you walk in the door, and every message that you hear at that church is going to have three or five points about something that will make you more successful as a person or make your life better. It might be five steps to dealing with very difficult people. It might be three steps to having a, a, a wonderful and powerful God-centered marriage. It might be three steps to deal with anger or how to find forgiveness. Okay, these are all good things. Some churches are all about discovering your potential. How to become the best that you can be. Some are fixated on a particular bent of theology or a style of worship. And so everything is centered around that. Some churches are centered on politics or social justice or racial reconciliation. And the list goes on. Now, here's the thing about all of these things. They're good things. They're all really good things and they're vital and they should be part of what the church does, but they should never be the center of what the church does. All of these things should flow out of the core message, which is what Jesus has done for us. That should be the center. At Trinity, the, leader, the leadership of our church is constantly thinking about this. We try to create every program every ministry, every mission endeavor. We want Christ to be in the center of all of that for the glory of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Our hope and prayer is that everyone that comes to Trinity will find God more amazing, that they will be in awe of God, and that will happen in ways that it grows deeper and deeper and deeper as they continue to invest. Did you know that when we are amazed by Jesus, when we're amazed by Jesus, all the things that we're supposed to do for God happen naturally. When we're amazed by Jesus, everything else just flows out of that. And that's what we're hoping to achieve here at Trinity. Now, another thing that you should know about Trinity is that we celebrate our diversity. We love the fact that we are a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church. I mean, look around at this place. There are like 30 different languages that are spoken here and we celebrate that. And you know what? We're not just ethnically or racially diverse, we are denominationally diverse as well. Do you know that, and I know this because I've talked with people, we have Methodists, We have Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Catholics, Anglicans, Reformed, Assembly of God, Lutheran, Pentecostal, non-denominational, interdenominational, and we even have a few Baptists here. (laughs) I know, I've talked to people. (laughs) You want to hear a funny story about that? Fifteen years ago, when I was applying for the job of associate pastor here at Trinity, I went through six or seven rounds of interviews. I mean, you would think I was trying to get into the CIA, okay? (laughs) On the last round of those interviews, I was supposed to spend a half day with Keith. And so, you know, Keith didn't really know what I was supposed to do. I showed up at his office, and so we sat down, and we just started talking about life and the church and... (laughs) ministry. I mean, it was an awesome day. And about two hours into my conversation with Keith, I had this moment of dread. I realized that in all of those interviews leading up to my time with Keith, no one had ever asked me about my denominational background. And so I said, Keith, you know, it's kind of late in the game for me to bring, be bringing this up at this point, but, you know, I'm not from a Baptist background, and he looked at me and he said, oh, well, I'm not Baptist. And, and, and we both, we th- we, that was my response. We all just, we both laughed. And, then I, and I said, so how does that work, Keith? How does that work? I mean, you are the head of, of this Baptist church. How does this work? And he said, well, I look up a lot of things, you know. And, and he said, but really what it comes down to is this. I have made it a point, and the leadership of our church has made it a point to keep Christ in the center of everything that we do. Every time, he said, every time that I get up in front of our congregation, I want to make sure that I weave the gospel into whatever it is that I say. And I don't focus on peripheral issues. I focus on the core of the gospel because I know people's salvation are lying in the balance, and that's what I focus on. And I knew in that moment that I wanted to work for this church. That sealed it for me right there. I mean, I kind of had a sense before that, but I knew this was a great church, and I wanted to be part of that. And I think that's part of the reason why we can be so diverse and still be unified as a church. Because, you know, if you think about all of the infighting that happens between denominations, it's almost all about the peripheral issues. uh, Infant baptism, uh, it could be a number of peripheral things, predestination. But almost all denominations agree that Christ died on the cross and was rose from the dead so that we could spend eternity with the Father. And if we could all focus on that, we would see unity across the church universal in ways that we've never seen before. Now, in verses 11 through 14, it says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go out to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. What is this saying? Here the author is comparing the Day of Atonement with Jesus. Jesus. Now again, on the Day of Atonement, the priests would take an animal, sacrifice the animal on behalf of the community, and they would take the body of that animal outside the camp, outside the gates. And that animal would be burned there. And what that signified was the sins of the people were being transferred to the animal. The animal would be killed and taken outside the camp and burned, meaning Your sins are being taken away. Now we know that the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf accomplishes that same thing now and forever, right? So the the author is making the comparison of the two here. Now in verse 12, uh, it reminds us that Jesus, again, became the sacrifice of all, and this is the gospel message that needs to be center in all of our lives. He does not want these Hebrews to forget the center of this message. Now, if we want to be like Jesus, we can learn a few things from this text here. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to go outside the camp to meet Jesus and experience what he has for us. We also need to be going outside the camp to seek and save the lost because that's what was important to him. Remember, Jesus said that even if he had a hundred sheep or 99 sheep and one was lost, he would go after the one. If he has a hundred sheep and one goes missing. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. What is Jesus saying when he's making that illustration? He's saying that every lost person matters to me. I will put the 99 in a bit of jeopardy, hoping that they'll be okay, as long as they stick together, to leave the camp and go after that one that is lost because every single person matters to me. And if we want to be like Jesus, we need to go outside the camp and we need to seek and save the lost just like jesus did so how are we doing how are we doing with that do we know lost people do we know lost people the reason why i ask that is a lot of times when people come to faith in christ and statistics will show this after a couple of years you are so immersed in christian culture that you've lost track of almost all of your secular friends, okay? But what this is calling us to is to stay connected with your secular friends and be salt and light with them. If we died today, would there be secular lost people at your funeral? What part of our lives will show the world that we're willing to go outside the camp for the sake of the lost? What is it that that we're doing? What is it that's part of our routine? In verse 15, it says, Though Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. What is this talking about? As sacrifice is something that is pleasing to god right a sacrifice is something that is pleasing to god but a real sacrifice normally costs us something it's not a sacrifice if it doesn't have any impact on your well-being okay david one time he said he would never make a sacrifice to god unless it cost him something So what will you give up for God? Is it your time, your money, your desires, and your plans? Now, praise comes from the heart, but when we put our praises into words, what that does is it helps us to understand specifically what we are praising God for. It connects us to God in in a deeply intimate way. That's why praise is so important. Have you ever come to church and you walk in those doors in the back and you're not really feeling it. You're here kind of out of obedience. And then as you enter into worship and you're looking at the, the lyrics of the songs and you start singing them out loud and all of a sudden you start to feel your mood change. You start to enter in and you start to experience the presence of God in your life. That's what this is talking about. Praise isn't just for God, it changes us. And you know what? In verse 16, it says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Okay? Now, when anyone experiences the gospel, they can't help it. They automatically become a generous person. When you really experience the gospel, what God has done for you, and it, and the penny drops, and you start to, to to realize the magnitude of that sacrifice and how it impacts your life, you naturally become a generous person. You want to give of yourself for the sake of others. Last week, I spent some time talking about our budget shortfall, and. For years, I, I really struggled with the whole idea of talking about money, especially in ministry. It's, it was always sort of awkward for me because I didn't want to put people in a place where they felt coerced in any way. And uh, you know, if they, if you ask somebody to give and they don't, that's that can be awkward, right? Well, years ago, I was working for an organization called Young Life. And when I was working for that ministry, we had to raise most of our support in order to to be part of that ministry. And so I was doing letter campaigns to everybody that I knew, friends, colleagues, neighbors. And I would send those letters out. And, you know, some people would be really responsive, and I would really feel blessed by that. But other times, you know, you would run into people that you had sent letters to that had never responded. And when you see them, there's this feeling of awkwardness. At least I would feel awkward because I would be like, now, did you not give because you don't like me or you you didn't believe in what I was doing or maybe you didn't get the letter? How do you ask? It was just awkward. And so I did not like that part of my job. It just, I, I didn't want to do it. And one day I was talking with the regional director about this, these feelings that I was having. And he said, oh, James, you have it all wrong, you have it all wrong, listen to me. And I mean, listen to me on this. He said, when you send out a letter to someone, you are giving them the opportunity to invest in something that is so incredible. So incredible. And they are probably in a position where they could not invest the way you are investing. So you are giving them an opportunity to partner with you in that. And if you don't write that letter, and if you don't follow up, you're robbing them of the blessing that they're going to receive. And I was just like, wow, you know, that, that is true. And it changed my perspective. Now, let me talk about great investments. And I, I want to just throw out kind of an analogy for you, or an illustration. Let's say that in the mid-70s, you were living in Seattle. Now, some of you weren't even born yet, so that might not be possible. But, just for the sake of the illustration, let's say you were living in Seattle, mid-70s, and one day you were taking your garbage out. So you walk down to your driveway and you put the trash can out and you look over and next door to you is this kid by the name of Billy Gates. And you see that his garage door is open and he's in there tinkering with something, you know, and so you, you walk over and you say, Hey Billy, what's going on? And he said, Well, you know, I'm building this computer. And I I really think I'm onto something here. I want to start a company that I think is going to transform the world. And I'm at the place where I want to launch this thing, but I need investors. And I don't know anybody, I just I just like computers. But if you would help me say, invest $5,000 in this company, I'll give you 20% of, of my company. What would you say? Well, you probably say, well, $5,000 is a lot of money, Billy. But what if you said yes? If you said yes, you would be so rich today that you would be walking around and if you were fumbling through your purse or your wallet and you accidentally dropped a $100 bill, you wouldn't bother to bend over and pick it up because (laughs) it would cost you more in time and money to bend over (laughs) than just to keep walking, right? Now you would say, that was the greatest investment that I could have made. Thank you, Billy. Right? Well, I want to tell you that that would have been an amazing investment, but the investment that I was talking about last week, if you think about it in light of eternity, is a much greater investment than anything you could have invested in on this earth. Because someday Bill's going to go somewhere. And all of his money is going to stay here. And all of his investors are going to be in that same boat. But the things that we invest in when it comes to this church are all about what Christ has done for us. And when people get that, it means the difference between spending eternity lost or spending all of eternity with the Creator. That's an incredible investment that we have the opportunity to pour ourselves into. Now, in verse 17, the author says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Okay, what is this talking about? This is talking about submission. It's calling us to submit to the leaders within the church. Now, sometimes the whole idea of submission or obedience rubs people the wrong way, right? But this is really important to think about because God ordained the church, and he raises up and appoints leaders within that institution And that does not mean that the leaders that he raises up are perfect or that they won't make mistakes. They will. In fact, God always uses people that are fallible because he doesn't want it to be about the people. He wants it to be about him. So he raises up people that are fallible. They make mistakes. But God puts his spirit on the church, and he puts his spirit on those leaders, and they are conduits through which God speaks and teaches and guides and directs and counsels and spurs the body on to good works. That's what God is trying to do through the leadership of this church. And trust should be assumed unless there is some sort of violation that you can see. And when I say violation, if your leaders are doing something that is contrary to what the Bible is calling us to And if that's ever the case, you should always choose God over man, okay? In verse 18 and 19, it says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now, before I get into this, can I just say that even if we as leaders really mess things up, and we might, God has the ability and has proven himself many times over that he can take something that is broken and he can turn it into something beautiful. And that's really what he specializes in. If you think about your lives and you see your lives as broken in some capacity right now. God specializes in taking what is broken and turning it into something beautiful so that it's actually better than it was before it was actually broken. That's what God does. Now, this verse in 18 and 19 is highlighting the importance of your prayers. We need you to pray for this church and for all of the leaders. We need you to pray Now, while I am certain that the leaders of this church are doing their best to honor God, as I said, we make mistakes. We will make mistakes. But God is not worried about that. He's bigger than all of those mistakes. And the best part is, is he listens to your prayers. He listens to your prayers, and he responds to those prayers, and he loves it when you are part of the whole dynamic of taking what he has ordained and moving it Toward what he envisioned. And prayer is a very important part of that. There's power in our prayer. And finally, in verses 20 through 23, the author concludes this letter with a benediction. And this is what the benediction says. It says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen." So that's how the author closes this letter in Hebrews. And with that benediction, That's how we're going to close this series in the book of Hebrews. And here's what I hope you take away from this series. I hope that over the past five months, you've come to a better understanding of the superiority of Jesus, how nothing compares to him and anything less than Jesus would be settling. I hope that you recognize him as your great high priest that he has made himself the ultimate sacrifice so we might be free from the chains of sin and death, that he has reconciled you to God, that he has filled you with his spirit and that he has equipped you with everything that you need to do the things that God has called you to do. And he has a plan for each of us, a very distinct plan that is of the utmost importance And a part of that plan, maybe the center of that plan, is to live out the gospel. To live it out, and not just in our hearts, and not just here within the walls of this church, but to take it out as we go, right? That's the call, to seek and save the lost. And he's equipped you to do that, each of us in very unique ways. And he's strategically placed each of us in locations that you can reach people that nobody else can. Isn't that cool to think about? That there's no one in the world that can accomplish what God has envisioned for you to do better than you can do it. And he's going to make sure you're successful as long as the things that you do flow out of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this message. Thank you for your love for us, the call that you've placed on our lives, the fact that you've given us a great church that longs to keep you and your gospel message at the center of everything that we do, Lord. And I pray that as we strive to keep you in the center, that you will continue to bless this church, that you will extend the legacy from 150 years to who knows how it long, Lord. But we want to be intricately involved in that investment. Show us what that looks like in the name of Jesus. Amen.